Right, well, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the LSE this evening, and especially to Sadiq Khan, who is the MP for Tooting, the Shadow Lord Chancellor, there's a long list, so wait for it, the Shadow Secretary of State for Justice, and the mastermind behind Ed Miliband's successful Labour leadership campaign. Sadiq will speak to us for about 35, 40 minutes, after which he's kindly agreed to take questions from the floor for about half an hour. So think while he's speaking what you'd like to ask him about related to his speech. A fair trial for the Human Rights Act. This was the title Sadiq chose for tonight's lecture with no question mark. My guess and hope is that this interest in human rights and fair trials follows from Sadiq's former life as a solicitor and partner in a human rights practice, a former vice chair of the Legal Action Group, and a former chair of Liberty, where I first met Sadiq when we were both members of the board in what truly feels like a former lifetime. It probably feels like two lifetimes ago for you, Sadiq. I hope Sadiq doesn't mind me saying that I imagine he also learned a thing or two about the importance of justice, social justice, and legal justice on the Henry Prince Council estate in Wandsworth, where I believe he grew up. Is that right? I got this right? Good. Henry Prince, although I sort of trying to think of it the other way around as Prince Henry, but Henry Prince is an aristocratic sounding name, isn't it? But I think, it's <laughs> I think it's fair to say that the pavements of that estate are quite a distance from the playing fields of Eton, which seems to have made a comeback, hasn't it, recently, as the preferred breeding ground for aspiring political leaders. Ruminating about a fair trial for the Human Rights Act brought to mind that other famous trial immortalised by the Czech author Franz Kafka in 1925. For those who are not familiar with it, the accused, K, which does not stand for Klug, never finds out what he's charged with. No 50% reduction in his sentence for an early plea, you'll be glad to know, Sadiq. But K does know his execution is inevitable. Well, I suppose that although its execution is in the balance, we can't say that we don't know the charge sheet against the Human Rights Act. It's prevented asylum seekers from being starved out of the country. It's stopped deportations to places of torture. It's prevented indefinite detention without trial. It's allowed a few travelers to continue with their lifestyle. It requires immigration judges, and this is causing the most fuss at the moment, I think, to consider the needs of children before removing their parents, even when they have committed a crime. And you know what? The Human Rights Act might prevent Westminster Council from criminalizing the local soup run, for God's sake. And it has meant that public authorities in care homes sometimes, not often enough given recent scandals, put individual rights before bureaucratic and financial considerations, creating what David Cameron once described as leader of the opposition as this whole health and safety human rights act culture that has infected every part of our life. Were it so, some people might say. 
Returning to Kafka, I find actually that studying literature is more useful than law or even politics these days in deciphering political discourse. I don't know about you, but I don't know where I would have been without George Orwell in New Labour's years. <laughs> Apologies, Sadiq. <laughs> Orwell's... <laughs> no, no, I think that's what I meant to do at that point. Orwell's Newspeak and Doublespeak, sometimes compressed as... Sorry, Newspeak and Doublethink, sometimes compressed as Doublespeak, has prepared us beautifully for decoding official pronouncements, hasn't it? Control orders, which ushered in a process truly worthy of Kafka, in which suspects are never told what they are charged with, was introduced by New Labour following 9-11 as a temporary measure and vigorously opposed by both coalition parties when they were out of power. Now in government, these same parties say they've overturned control orders, except they've replaced them with TPIMs, not to be confused with a cocktail, which are ever so slightly less restrictive than control orders, but they are permanent, not temporary. Whilst we are on Orwell, consider this. A Bill of Rights Commission, that's a grand sounding name, isn't it? A Bill of Rights Commission, it gets the juices rolling all around the world when people set up a Bill of Rights Commission. It's been set up by the coalition government to investigating replacing the Human Rights Act with a British Bill of Rights, so that, according to our Prime Minister, the courts will have less powers than they currently have under the Human Rights Act. Does anyone want me to repeat that? It's so that the courts will have less powers than under the Human Rights Act, and I'm only barely paraphrasing. Now, it's perfectly reasonable, of course, to argue for a supplementary or stronger Bill of Rights than the Human Rights Act, and I've done so myself, just as it is perfectly reasonable, of course, to argue against any Bills of Rights, including the Human Rights Act, on the grounds that politicians, not judges, should have the final say on issues that affect fundamental rights. Some of my best friends have argued this for a long time. But these are grounds for being opposed to a Bill of Rights, not for introducing one, Mr. Cameron. And then there is Lewis Carroll. I felt I was really, looking through the look, really going through the looking glass yesterday when I heard the Home Secretary say, we will not work with extremists, organizations, that oppose our values of universal human rights. Now, wait a minute. Is this, have I got this right, is this from the same government which says we should ignore European Court of Human Rights decisions where Parliament disagrees with them, or that we should repeal the Human Rights Act because, and I quote, rights should be written down here in this country, rather than, I presume, the UN or the Council of Europe, the main sources of those very same universal human rights values the government rightly encourages us to respect. The main charge against the Human Rights Act, if you listen carefully to its accusers, is precisely that it protects universal human rights drawn from international human rights standards. Indeed, some quarters, I'd suggest, 
in some quarters, support for a Bill of Rights has become code for opposition to incorporating universal and international human rights norms into our law, rather than a vision of what a British Bill of Rights should look like. Who's not switched off their phone? <laughs> Detention. <laughs> From my research on Bills of Rights around the world, Calling for a Bill of Rights in order to weaken adherence to international human rights norms in domestic law is simply unprecedented. But if we do it here, I tell you, it could catch on. If the Human Rights Act is to receive a stay of execution, unlike Paul Kay, the only major opposition party, which of course introduced the Human Rights Act in the first place, will have a significant role to play. I very much look forward to listening to the Shadow Justice Secretary speak about his take on the Human Rights Act, the current debate on its replacement, and what role, if any, his party might play in ensuring it gets a fair hearing. Thank you. Sidi. Ladies and gentlemen, can I, can I um, begin by saying it's a pleasure to be here this evening, I want to thank all of you for coming. I'm told it's 24 degrees outside. Um, so thank you all for coming to the LSE uh, Law Department uh, this evening. I want to thank the LSE Law Department for hosting uh, tonight's event. I want to thank Francesca for doing me the honour of uh, her introduction. Um, I, I enjoyed it, really. Uh, and, and, and more importantly, for agreeing to chair this evening's event. Francesca is one of the leading authorities on the Human Rights Act and tonight's discussion, I'm sure, couldn't be in safer hands. When I first began discussions with the LSC Law Department uh, about, about hosting this event many months ago, the idea was for it to be an exposition of Labour's past and current position on the Human Rights Act and human rights generally. And as the title suggests, an assessment of whether the Human Rights Act receives a fair hearing in the press or indeed in Parliament. And since then, a lot's happened, from super injunctions and rows over the deportation of foreign offenders, to compensation for prisoners and appeals to the sex offenders register. Exceptional cases have been deliberately conflated and confused sometimes in an attempt to undermine human rights legislation. This doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't take conflicts and tensions over the Human Rights Act seriously. Some concerns are legitimate, and I'll try and tackle them. I'll try and tackle them head on. But recent events have made uh, clear that now, perhaps more than ever, people who believe in strong, codified human rights legislation need to provide a robust and convincing defence of it, and be positive advocates for it. And that is where I intend to start this evening. First by going back to first principles, being explicit about what human rights are, honest about how they relate to our civic responsibilities, and clear about enshrining them in law, and why Labour remains proud to have done so. I'll then unpack some of the cases that have been held up as being morally counterintuitive implications of enforcing the Human Rights Act, and provide counterexamples to the critics who say no good common sense decisions emerge from it. And finally, 
perhaps a bit more diplomatically than uh, Francesca's done, I'll assess the coalition government's approach to human rights and the complete political fudge uh, that is the Commission on a British Bill of Rights. That didn't sound very diplomatic. I'll try my best, Francesco. As the distinguished board member of this university's Centre for Human Rights, Lord Frank Judd, has said, human rights are not an optional extra for a civilised society, but rather they're the cornerstone of it. Inalienable, indivisible, and ours simply by virtue of our humanity. These rights are inherent to all human beings. And they're not abstract concepts or things that don't affect ordinary people's everyday lives. They're fundamental rights and freedoms that underpin our society and democracy, such as the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to be free from torture or inhumane treatment, the right to a fair trial, free and fair elections, the right to receive an education, to marry, to practice your religion and express yourself freely. In the furore over the sex lives of footballers, it's easy to lose sight of these essential rights and how they came to be regarded as the cornerstone of a civilised society. Our own human rights legislation has its roots in the atrocities witnessed during the Second World War. This led to the Allied nations of Europe, inspired by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, encouraged by Winston Churchill to devise an international treaty to prevent the most serious violations of human rights from ever happening again. Sir David Maxwell Fife, Conservative Home Secretary in Churchill's government, was charged with overseeing the drafting of the European Convention on Human Rights, and Britain was the first of the European countries to ratify it in 1950. It wasn't until the Wilson government that in the UK in 1966 we agreed that British citizens could seek redress for perceived violations of their human rights, right, rights by the government at the European Court of Human Rights as outlined in the Convention. But to do this, British people had to go through the time and expense of taking their cases to Strasbourg. Despite several calls for the UK to have its own human rights legislation to protect the rights and liberties of British people in domestic law, it wasn't until after the 1997 Labour victory that citizens gained the statutory right to enforce their human rights in the UK. And this followed a long debate, not dissimilar to now, about whether the UK should introduce a Bill of Rights. It was notable Conservative ministers and leading Liberal Democrats who were initially the strongest advocates of a Bill of Rights, based on the rights in the ECHR which UK governments, but not courts or other public authorities, were already bound to respect. Well-known Conservative supporters of such a measure at various times including, included the former Conservative Home Secretary, Leon Britton, and former Conservative Minister, Norman St. John Stevens, former Conservative Attorney General, Sir Michael Havers, and former Tory Lord Chancellor, Quentin Hogg, subsequently, of course, Lord Helsham. The Labour government, true to its manifesto pledge, drafted the Human Rights Act in 1998, and by 2000, when the legislation was first enacted for the first time, British citizens could bring their human rights cases to British courts in front of British judges. The Act enshrined in domestic law most of the rights contained in the ECHR. It also included two additional clauses to underline the importance of freedom of conscience and religion and a free press. But the Act was deliberately crafted to ensure that British courts weren't merely an echo chamber of the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. It took the rights of the Convention 
and allowed our judges to interpret them as they saw fit. Meaning that while UK courts have to take account of Strasbourg case law and cases related to convention right, they don't have to incorporate it and can depart from it when appropriate. This was made explicit by the then Lord Chancellor, Lord Irving, when he said domestic courts must be allowed flexibility and discretion in developing human rights law, which is precisely what the Human Rights Act gives. It recognises that not all rights carry the same weight, but rather they fall into three categories. Absolute rights, those that can never be infringed, such as the right to protection from torture. Limited rights, such as the right to liberty, which may be withdrawn under particular circumstances prescribed by law, the obvious example being following conviction of a crime. And qualified rights, such as freedom of expression, where a balance is struck between the rights of the individual asserting free speech and the needs of the wider community to freedom from hate or harassment or to protect their privacy. But most crucially, it explicitly maintains parliamentary sovereignty and the supremacy of parliament as the only lawmaking authority. If a British court finds our legislation does not comply with the Human Rights Act, it cannot use the Human Rights Act to force Parliament to change the law. Instead, it can issue what is known as a Declaration of Incompatibility. And it's up to Parliament, and Parliament alone, to decide the best way to respond, and may in fact choose not to respond at all. And I know Francesca helped devise this approach as a research fellow when at King's College in the mid-1990s. It's this that distinguishes our human rights from other examples of rights legislation, such as the US Bill of Rights, which does have supremacy over the US government and Congress. And the fact that this essential feature of the Human Rights Act is little known has, it would seem rather cynically, been exploited by the Tory-led government, many of whom are explicit that they want to see this act repealed. And let me give you one recent example of this. In February, at the height of the media maelstrom surrounding the government's announcement it was to give prisoners the vote, the Home Secretary gave a statement to the House of Commons declaring, as a result of the Supreme Court decision 10 months earlier in April 2010, the government were going to have to allow sex offenders the opportunity to appeal their inclusion on the sex offenders register, uh, which they're on for life. She said that the government were disappointed and appalled by the decision and that there was no possibility for further appeal and so the government would change the law accordingly. In other words, she was being forced by the courts to make the policy announcement she was making. Now, either the Home Secretary didn't know the law or she was being disingenuous about its application. The Supreme Court declared that the current law as applied to the Sex Offenders Register was incompatible with the government's obligations under the Human Rights Act. Once it made the ruling, it was up to Parliament to decide how to proceed, and the court could not and did not prescribe or dictate a course of action. One option the Home Secretary had was to ignore the ruling and not change the legislation. She was not even under an obligation to refer to it at all. Another was to review the current situation and see how it could best be adapted to be compliant with the law, but to put public protection first. But she didn't choose either of these options. And the Home Secretary's got no excuse. She should know the law as it applies to her brief and has, I believe, responsibility to relay accurately to Parliament. Now, 
the fact that there's a the fact that there's a lack of general knowledge and understanding of the Human Rights Act and how it works, and that this can be exploited by politicians, is, I suspect, in part, because there was no real attempt at its inception to communicate its benefits to our citizens. A huge amount of time was spent getting judges and lawyers ready for the Act, but nowhere near the same effort to, inf to inform the public. Nevertheless, it was Labour that made the bold decision to enshrine the Convention rights that protects people's freedoms into British law. And we did so not because of pressure from the tabloids, quite the um, contrary. Not because of the focus groups and opinion polls. Not because they said so. Not because we wanted to invent a new raft of rights. We did it because we wanted to deliver for British citizens access to redress in Britain for violations of rights already protected by the ECHR in virtually every other country in Europe from east to west as they'd already done. Labour recognised that governments and public authorities should be kept in check and individuals should have their rights protected against encroachment by the state. Now, I'm not saying that the legislation is perfect and it's just the way it was articulated by ministers that was wrong. There may indeed be good ways to build on and improve the Human Rights Act and we should discuss openly what that might entail. There is no legislation, no Bill of Rights that can't be improved. And when the Act was developed, I accept more could have been done to educate and inform the public, to try and cultivate a feeling of public ownership of a fundamental legislation that affects the decisions of all public bodies. And we should have been clearer about what human rights are and how they relate to our everyday lives. The Labour government of the time introduced the Act, but didn't, in my opinion, try to explain the good reasons why or who and what it was designed to protect. It made it sound like a, it made it sound like a technical measure at times. And let's be honest, sometimes some ministers, Labour ministers, were very frustrated with it, were very frustrated with it when decisions they made were highlighted as breaches of human rights. But then, of course, that's what human rights charters and bills of rights are for. And politicians get frustrated by them the world over. This is very different from repealing them, which, as the last manifesto made clear, Labour had no intention of doing with the Human Rights Act. No rights without responsibilities was a mantra often deployed to preempt attacks on the Human Rights Act from those who argue that the irresponsible have, by their own actions, somehow forfeited the right to such protection. Or, conversely, that the Human Rights Act only served to protect the rights of an unpopular minority. It doesn't. The Human Rights Act protects everyone. Anyone who could be falsely accused, anyone who's discriminated against, or suffers at the hands of unfair decisions by public bodies. Now, it might be unpopular to say this, but that includes the unpopular minority. For example, we can deplore the criminal actions of offenders, but however heinous their crimes, we also want to live in a society where they've got the right to a fair and open trial, and if found guilty, face the full weight of the law. For although our absolute rights are not contingent on any responsibilities, we should lose some rights to liberty, family life, assembly, expression, and more, proportionally to the extent that it's necessary to respect the rights of others or 
protect public safety and well-being. But it's been very easy for critics to peddle misinformation, to conflate rulings made under the Human Rights Act with those passed down by the European Convention and European Court of Human Rights, rather, and selectively highlight examples that play into the argument that it's a criminal's charter. Scratch a little below the surface, and these can be repudiated. But it's not difficult for inaccurate or sometimes plainly false cases of the perceived misuse of the Human Rights Act to stick in the public's conscious. And I want to deal with some of the more famous myths. The press have reported, as a fact, that a serial killer received hardcore porn in prison due to the Human Rights Act. This is total fiction. The prisoner in question, Dennis Nielsen, brought his case to the court when he was denied access to porn by the prison governor. The court ruled there had been no breach of his human rights and that the judicial review should not even go ahead. The governor's decision stood. We've heard stories that a suspect in a car robbery was given his choice of a takeaway meal by the police because of his human rights. Also, total fiction, there is no human rights to McDonald's or any other fast food outlet. The police decided to comply with his demands as part of their negotiating strategy, not because of the Human Rights Act. More recently, the former Shadow Justice Secretary, Dominic Grieve QC, who is now the Attorney General, in 2009 claimed that the Derbyshire Police Force had refused to release pictures of two fugitive murderers because it could have impinged on their human rights. Again, this is totally untrue. The Human Rights Act imposes an obligation on the state to protect people from serious, unforeseeable criminal attack and properly interpreted would not prohibit the use of wanted posters with photographs of criminals to this end. In fact, the Derbyshire Constabulary put out an official statement correcting the Shadow Justice Secretary saying it has never refused to release photographs on the grounds of the human rights of offenders. There are other examples reported in the media of apparent misuses of the Human Rights Act that are either plainly untrue or if brought before a judge are thrown out of court. But we often don't hear the final ruling, only the fact that an application has been made. But it is an entitlement for all citizens to be able to bring cases to the courts if they feel their rights have been breached. That's why bills of rights like the Human Rights Act are in most countries seen as an essential part of democracy so that every individual can seek to hold the state to account, and not just once every four or five years in the ballot box. But, and this is very important, there is no entitlement to have a case upheld. If there clearly has not been a breach of a person's rights, as protected by the Human Rights Act, we should expect the case to be thrown out at the earliest opportunity and no more time to be wasted. And by and large, that's what happens. That's why CCTV still operates to protect public safety, and why our courts have refused to overturn the ASBA regime. However, I fully accept there have been cases where a decision under the Human Rights Act has compounded a genuine grievance with the legal and justice system, and these need to be explained properly, and lessons from them must be learned. Take the recent tragic case that has received much coverage of failed Iraqi asylum seeker Azar Mohammed Ibrahim. In 2003, Ibrahim, an already failed asylum seeker who already had a caution 
for criminal damage ran over a young girl, Amy Houston, and left her fatally injured under the wheels of his car as he fled the scene. A more tragic incident is hard to imagine. Ibrahim later gave himself up to the police and was convicted, but was charged not of causing death by dangerous driving, not of manslaughter or even murder, as one might have expected, but of the relatively minor offences of fleeing the scene of a crime and driving without a licence. For his actions, he received an incredibly lenient sentence of only four months, four months for killing a child. Amy's father, understandably outraged by the injustice of the situation, has campaigned for years for his daughter's killer to be deported. But for years, the authorities did nothing. They didn't move to deport him or respond to Amy's father's demands. The decision to charge him for a lesser crime than the one he actually committed, the decision to give him the lenient sentence he received, and the inaction by the authorities who should have deported him when his asylum application failed, were all, in my mind, completely unjust. But none of this was the result of the Human Rights Act. The delay in taking steps to remove him, spanning several years, gave Azza Mohammed Ibrahim time to begin a relationship with a British woman and have two children with her. It was this that kept him in the country. Article 8 of the Human Rights Act protects the right to family life and the impact of his deportation on his small children, born and raised here, is what allowed Azza Mohammed Ibrahim to stay. Now, some people may disagree with this decision, but others will accept that the sins of the fathers should not be visited on their children would have been deprived of their father as a result. I can understand why Amy's family feel justice hasn't been served. They were failed. They were failed by the Home Office, who didn't take the necessary steps to deport Azza Mohammed Ibrahim when they could, and by the criminal justice process when he didn't serve a prison sentence that was befitting of the crime he committed. A crime of that sort should carry a long prison sentence measured in years and not months. It should also have a deportation order attached to it. So upon conclusion of a prison sentence, a convicted criminal without immigration rights can be deported. Examples like this, where there's been a systemic failure to deliver justice for victims and their families due to inefficiency or too lenient a sentence, are used to damage the credibility of the Human Rights Act, which does allow for limitations of rights, including those protected by Article 8 in the interest of public safety or to stop a crime. They detract from real benefits the Act has delivered, the Act has delivered for ordinary people who, without it, would not have been able to stand up to the government and other public bodies when their rights are infringed. The Human Rights Act has delivered some landmark rulings that have changed the power relationship between the individual and the state. It's because of the Human Rights Act that Diane Blood was able to successfully challenge the decision preventing her from naming her deceased husband on their child's birth certificate. It's because of the Human Rights Act that Vera Bryant was able to secure an inquest into her daughter Naomi's murder, who was unlawfully killed following a catalogue of public authority failings that allowed the release of a dangerous man to offend again. And it's because of the Human Rights Act that a local authority had to consider its insensitive decision to separate an elderly disabled couple who'd been together for 65 years by initially failing to admit them into the same care homes. It's true that these common sense decisions made on the basis of the Human Rights Act receive less coverage 
than the more sensational distortions of its rulings or unrealistic bids for compensation made by people whose rights have not been breached. But the real success of the Human Rights Act is something that receives no coverage at all. It has, by institutionalising human rights, changed the culture and procedures of public bodies in a way that makes them duty-bound to respect our human rights in their decision-making process. For example, each bill, before it's presented to Parliament, needs a certificate to show it's compliant with the Human Rights Act, and if not, ministers need to explain why. This means that secretaries of state and the departments they run have to bear our human rights in mind when they draft legislation. By changing the culture and discourse on human rights, it was the pre previous Labour government that has set the scene for the discussions we're having today about the role of human rights in our constitution. And what about the other two mainstream parties? The two parties in the coalition entered into it with diametrically opposed positions on the Human Rights Act. The Liberal Democrats said in their manifesto that they would ensure that, and I quote, everyone has the same protections under the law by protecting the Human Rights Act. While the Conservatives said in theirs they would abolish the Act and replace it with a Bill of Rights. And as Francesca said, what we've got is a commission to, and I quote, consider the options. But not the cross-party commission one might expect from something of this constitutional magnitude. Not one comprising of a cross-section of stakeholders in the human rights field, or even, dare I say, MPs. Instead, we've got a commission made up overwhelmingly of lawyers. Now, I've got nothing against lawyers. Some of our best friends uh, are, are lawyers. But of the people, for the people, and by the people, it ain't. Uh, and distinguished as the commissioners may be, they will do nothing to address one of the principal criticisms of the process for adopting human rights legislation, that it is designed by and designed for lawyers, who, and it doesn't sufficiently engage with ordinary citizens whose rights it protects. Now, more surprisingly, it also can't actually deliver what David Cameron promised his party. The terms of reference of the Commission clearly states that its objectives is to investigate the creation of a UK Bill of Rights that incorporates and builds on all our obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights, ensures that these rights continue to be enshrined in UK law and protects and extends our liberties. And as I made clear at the time of the announcement, Labour doesn't oppose consulting on an introduction of, a, of an additional Bill of Rights. In fact, we're in government. We began the process of looking at an additional Bill of Rights <coughs> to the Human Rights Act. Our Bill of Rights would have built on the Human Rights Act, not replaced it. If the Human Rights Act is repealed, this won't mean that Britain is no longer subject to the European Convention of Human Rights. It would just mean that the only course of redress that British people have would be via the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Unpopular decisions passed down by the European Court of Human Rights, like the one to lift the blanket ban on prisoner voting, would still stand if the Human Rights Act was repealed. And on this issue, Labour's position is clear. Look, the right to vote is not absolute, and a person should lose it if they fail to respect the rights of others uh, to such a serious degree as to warrant a custodial sentence. However, we do believe in the rule of law, uh, rule of law and we do have obligations under the European Court of Human Rights, whose jurisdiction we accept. So this government needs to outline how it intends, at least by the smallest margin possible, to abide by the Court's rulings.
But that being said, this doesn't mean we shouldn't take whatever opportunities there are to reform the European Court of Human Rights, which suffers from a debilitating backlog of cases and can be criticised for the variable quality of its judges. But the government shouldn't underestimate the impact to our international standing and to the domino effect on other Council of Europe members, in particular in the relatively new democracies of Eastern Europe and Russia, of not living up to our obligations to the court. Nor should they be disingenuous about the implications of withdrawal from the ECHR or underestimate the interrelated nature of the Convention, the Court, the Council of Europe and ultimately membership of the European Union. The ECHR and the European Court of Human Rights <coughs> have been a useful political football for the Eurosceptic Tory right, <coughs> which they've enjoyed kicking. But this manufactured angst is, is ultimately self-defeating in the long term. The Soviet coalition government will have no truck with the rumblings about withdrawing from the Council of Europe or indeed uh, the EU, EU uh, and have expressed no intention of coming anywhere close to this position. So we will remain under the jurisdiction of, Euro of European human rights institutions under any decent British government of any political hue in the future. We don't even expect the Commission to report back until 2013, and when they do, it is more likely that their findings will feed into the Coalition Party's next election manifestos rather than inform this government's policies. Uh, and I mentioned uh, David Cameron, but it's worth reminding ourselves, when David Cameron announced the imminent establishment of the Commission in February, he said its purpose was, and I quote, to look at a British Bill of Rights because it's about time we ensured that decisions are made in this Parliament rather than in the courts. Now, besides the fact that he announced uh, the proposed outcome of this uh, independent commission uh, at the same time as declaring it be set up, uh, as every good law student in the room knows, the whole purpose of Bills of Rights is to hold the executive and legislature to account in the courts, not to reduce their accountability. And in the meantime, uh, the government needs to start showing some leadership on the tricky issues which are thrown up when rights collide, as has been the case recently with super injunctions. The important issue of balancing the right to a private life as protected by Article 8 of the Human Rights Act and freedom of expression as protected in Article 10 of the Act has increasingly pitched the judiciary against the press. And the lack of any intervention or answers by this government has led to parliamentarians flouting rather than debating or amending the law. Everyone has the right, subject to lawful restrictions, to a private life. And it's something we expect and hope will be respected. For example, when we give confidential information to a doctor or other public body. But we also live in a society where we hold freedom of speech and expression as a pillar of democracy. The right the media has to report what's in the public interest is crucial to this, and it's acknowledged in the Human Rights Act, which, cries, which require, requires judges to pay particular regard to the rights upheld in Article 10 through the additional clause the Labour government introduced that I mentioned earlier, Section 12 of the Human Rights Act. And the media's gained a lot as a result. There's been increased protection for journalistic sources, greater access to court proceedings, and a reduction in libel payments, though there is still a long way to go uh, in that area. Surprisingly, the press have been shy 
to report these areas of benefit of the Human Rights Act. But there does seem to be a problem with the way the law has been interpreted and some legitimate concern that issues which are genuinely in the public interest rather than just interesting to the public are being unduly protected by injunctions. The fact that these are regularly broken by users on Twitter just further highlights the need to add clarity to the guidance for judges and ensure that our legislation can keep up with the change in technological context. But this should not be a pretext for throwing more mud at our human rights legislation. Now, I have no problem with tensions between the judiciary, the legislature and the executive. Which one of us would want to live in a country where any one of these fully controlled the others? But we do need a system that works. I welcome the fact that the governments followed our calls and finally established a joint justice and culture, media and sports select committee of both houses to consider how to improve the current system and strike the right balance between an individual right to privacy and the democratic right to freedom of speech and expression. It won't be an easy task. Dealing with fundamental rights on where there's little consensus, but plenty of media pressure and a myriad of complexity seldom is. But that doesn't mean we should ignore it or shirk our responsibility to deal with it. As I said at the beginning of this lecture, those of us who believe in the Human Rights Act and the freedoms it protects have a duty to defend it, be positive advocates for it, and take heed of legitimate criticisms levelled at it. The Human Rights Act was never supposed to be, it was, was never supposed to sit stagnant on the statute books, but rather be a living document responding to the pressures that modern society faces when, balances, when balancing rights and freedoms with the new security challenges that we face. And sometimes, when in government, we got the, that balance wrong. We, we took too casual an approach to the hard-won freedoms people in Britain should enjoy. Policies on detention without charge and control orders without checks and transparency may have diminished Labour's position on civil liberties. But the Human Rights Act still stands tall as one of, one of our many proud achievements. We should champion that and the benefits it's brought to, to all people that live under its jurisdiction. The law-abiding majority that are entitled to have their rights protected by the public authorities that govern them and the minorities that often have no other recourse to the law before which we're all equal. But we must go further than just enhancing the understanding of the Act within Parliament and to the public at large. As, as I've tried to demonstrate in this lecture, the Human Rights Act is not a fringe measure that only lawyers care about and offenders use. It should and could be a measure of national pride and international leverage, as with our human rights enshrined in law, we can speak with some authority about abuses by other regimes. The best way to foster this may be to create an additional Bill of Rights, and the Labour Party is willing to engage in debates about how this could be developed. But on the basis that it will incorporate and go beyond the Human Rights Act, not in any way retreat from it. I want to thank the LSC for allowing me to make this lecture, and I look forward to working with some of you uh, today to advance some of the arguments I have made to our fellow citizens. Thank you very much. Well, I think Sadiq did what he said on the tin, didn't he? He gave the Human Rights Act a fair trial. He looked at the evidence for it. 
the evidence against it, and I think he concluded that rehabilitation is required and maybe even some compensation owed to it for past misdemeanours, and I won't say where Up they to a maximum of a from. third of time off, not half. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've got about half an hour for questions, uh, but before I take them, uh, I just want to say a couple of things. I mean, one is that it's easy for academics like me and any other academics or students or NGO leaders in the hall, we can more or less say what we want when we want. But actually, Sadiq spoke about media press pressure, and I know that all politicians are under the pressure of the media, not to mention a myriad of other pressures, day in, day out. And I want to say that for everyone in this room who values human rights, and think that it matters that we have some sort of relationship with international human rights standards, I suspect everyone who feels that way wants to thank Sadiq for the courage he showed in defending the Human Rights Act. Sad reflection of where we are, that it is, that it takes courage, but I'm afraid that it does. So let's bear that in mind when we come to questions now. And I think it would be really good, then, to try and focus on this issue of the Human Rights Act, British Bill of Rights, issues that have been determined under the Human Rights Act, rather than roam too widely on other subjects that we have other opportunities to discuss, even with the shadow Lord Chancellor. But in the end, freedom of speech, it's up to you what you want to ask him. So um, I'm going to take them in bunches of three or four. So if I can see some hands and I can look around the room uh, who might want to ask a question. So I saw uh, the lady there, the man there, the lady there, and the lady there. In that order, please. Uh, firstly, thank you very much. That was a very interesting lecture. Um, you raised the issues of parliamentary sovereignty, but also the fact that we're still going to be bound by the European Convention on Human Rights, even if the Human Rights Act is repealed by the coalition government. Um, I'd be really interested to know your opinion on um, Lord Phillips' relatively recent comments um, that if the coalition government does repeal the Human Rights Act, that, well, in effect, that would make very little difference to the UK courts because judges might be forced to still interpret it in UK courts um, as if it were valid. Thank thanks. Thanks very so much. So what was your name? Uh, sorry, Sophie. Sophie. Yeah, thanks, Sadiq. Actually, we should swap here, shouldn't we? Um, please, will you say who you are and where, where you come from? Are you from the LSE or your refugee charity? Thank you, Sophie. Yeah. Hi, Mark Roney, Clifford Chance. Um, you touched on uh, a very wide range of uh, the Human Rights Act, but one element that you touched on but didn't really focus on were the duties that the Human Rights Act imposes on particularly government to provide those uh, rights. Um, one early example of the government uh, raising the Human Rights Act in defence of a claim was kettling uh, from 10 years ago, and this government successfully raised human rights saying it had a right to protect the life of those being kettled and those not kettled in taking those actions. Now, I'm not sort of advocating kettling, but that's just an example. Can we please, in the fight to come, put the duties of government to protect our security front and centre so that the, the world, according to the Daily Mail, realises that the Human Rights Act is an important tool in protecting ourselves? Thank you. And there are a couple here in the front. Hi. Sabina Fradiani from Liberty. Um, 
It's heartening to hear you say that Labour remains proud of the Human Rights Act and, and to hear you say that not enough effort went into informing the public um, about its merits. Um, we'd agree since, since 2008 we've commissioned regular public opinion polling about the Act and the results have consistently shown that while as many as 96% as of respondents think it's important that there's a law protecting rights and freedoms in Britain, as few as, as 9% uh, remember receiving or seeing any information from the government uh, about the Act. Um, you said yourself that, that not enough was done to inform the public. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're planning to do now you're in opposition um, to, to champion the Act and rehabilitate it and inform and persuade the general public of its value? Thanks for that. And there was another one near the front of the video. Thank you. Uh, Jill Barrett, British Institute of International Comparative Law. Um, you said the Labour Party is willing to engage in debate about possible ways of enhancing a Bill of Rights by a new British Bill of Rights in addition to the existing one. Um, well, I realise that debate has yet to take place, but do you have any personal views or suggestions about the kinds of enhancements that should be considered? For example, do you recommend um, new rights to be added, like economic, social, cultural rights, or right to the clean environment? Or are you thinking about other ways in which the Act could be enhanced? Thank you. Thanks very much. This is what you can always rely on an LSC audience to do. In the first round of questions, you've absolutely covered just about the whole field. It's brilliant. So, have you got them all down? Yeah, well, brilliant I'll for you, you, Francesca, but it's not, I've got to answer them. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to account if you don't can I just, them, uh, so don't worry. Can I um, thank you for those questions? Look, the first, I mean, <laughs> S S Sophie, you, you ask, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head in relation to, uh, I see, I'll be careful about phrases, MPs should be intelligent. <laughs> Discuss. But the evidence over the last six years I've been there is they're not all intelligent and uh, even if you're against the Human Rights Act and you think you know human rights human rights whatever you, I don't think they've caught on to the fact that there's this other convention that we're signatories to and I tried to explain in the speech that actually not even not even well there are some exceptional uh, conservative MPs but there aren't there aren't the mainstream who are saying let's get let's get, get, us, get ourselves out of uh, Council of Europe or, or EU or all the rest of it which, which would be the impact of uh, no longer being signatories to the ECHR, which begs the question, what happens if you uh, repeal the Human Rights Act, which is possible to do public sovereignty, bearing in mind there is the ECHR, and bearing in mind you've got a generation of judges now who get it, uh, and also a bunch of lawyers who get it. And if you look at the initial, actually, case law post-2000, a number of the judges were making decisions using common law jurisprudence to reach human rights conclusions because they were used, you know, you can, you can interpret cases, uh, if, you know, in different ways. So I think you're right to raise the point, even if they got this wish, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, getting rid of the Human Rights Act, uh, Lord Phillips is right to remind them, actually, the genie's out of the bottle in relation to rights as opposed to uh, you know, positive rights and, and, and how they've been interpret interpreted by the judges. And I think, and I, and I suspect, one of the reasons why the Commission's been kicked into the long grass is once they, they got into a closed room and realised the implications of repealing the Human Rights Act is not as simple as it, as it sounds, uh, unless you want to get, remove yourselves from uh, the EU, which is, you know, being, being, being straight, I'd be surprised if more than, 
yeah, there's not a significant majority in the Tory party who want to do that, so it's not going to happen. Um, yeah, the Kettling case, uh, a brilliant solicitor began that case, the Mayday case, uh, a number of years ago, which, which is now going to the European Government Rights. He's a really, really rising star. Well, keep an eye out for him. He's now a politician. Um, and he is intelligent. Uh, look, I mean, yeah, you, you, can I say this? I mean, look, uh, be careful how I say it. Yes, of course, the, the primary duty on a government is to keep uh, uh, their, their citizens secure. But it's also for us to preserve our liberties and our freedoms. And I think it's important to get the balance right. And that's why the word proportionate is very important in this context. Because if you take that too far, security, it can lead to... See, I don't think it's a false choice, security and liberty. I think they cross over. That's why I think you're really, you're really wise to remind us that actually human rights can be used in a positive sense by those who are the executive, actually. Uh, but it's about balance and proportionality. Uh, and I think the language is very important. That's why Sabina's question about education is so important. Because what we allow to happen, and one of the biggest criticisms I have of, of the first term Labour government, because you know we had three terms, as you know, and the first term did lots of wonderful things. And, and you speak to most uh, Labour enthusiasts, they will also tell you that their, their wish list of the best, the, the, the list of the five best things that Labour ever did in 13 years are, tend to be in the first term. The thing we did, I think, one of the worst things in the first term was the failure to have a commission in term one, a human rights commission. Because had we given somebody ownership of the Human Rights Act, they would have done the stuff that Sabina's talking about, some of the problems we've got now. Going properly into schools, not relying upon British Institute of Human Rights or Liberty or, or other NGOs you know, who are doing very important stuff, but uh, there are others I, 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 you know, I can't think of now who did that stuff, but it's, it's got to be done properly. And we tried to do it via citizenship, you know, by, by joining the citizenship classes in national curriculum, try and teach young people. Uh, about rights, you know, we're citizens rather than subjects uh, and that sort of stuff. And the problem is you then had um, uh, politicians who got nervous because the right-wing press was saying we're teaching young guys rights and they're then asking the police why are you stopping me and searching me? And we think that's a bad thing. I think it's not a bad thing actually asking police officers why are you stopping me and searching me. But anyway, um, and so I think, I think you're right to raise that. I think governments and the executive should be scared of using the Human Rights Act in a positive. And I'll tell you this, you speak to uh, ministers who are ministers during uh, 2000 and 2010 and even those who I, who I paraphrased during my speech actually think it was a really good thing having to do this, to the certificate of you know, making sure the act was human rights compliant. It was a very important discipline. Uh, even when a Home Secretary took a decision to derogate from the Human Rights Act, it was an important discipline for him to have, to make consciously a decision, I've decided to derogate from the Human Rights Act. That's, I think, a powerful thing. That's something that we should, it's the cultural point that I was trying to make. So when you're right about this issue about um, uh, information, I mean, what, what would be great is if, you know, this, this began a process whereby we went out into, you know, public halls, town halls, talked to ordinary people. i tell you, I tell you one thing, you know, this is why I'm optimistic. I remember years ago, I used to be a counsellor, uh, uh, as well as a great lawyer. Uh, I, 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 I remember years ago, when I was first a counsellor, people belittling the idea that somebody who became a British citizen would want to go to a town hall and have a citizenship ceremony. Okay? They said, no one want to do that. And I saw the pride people had during that sort of rites of passage type ceremony. And I think human rights uh, as part of citizenship is a really important thing we should think about, how we can bring it into uh, a rites of passage, being positive, being citizens, uh, uh, rather than the negative connotations with being subjects and having liberties and, and, all, and that discussion which took place 20 years ago.
But I think she's asking what do you hope no, no, sure, sure. that Labour will do now. Sure, and one of the things we're doing now is to try and be outward-looking as a party, not be, in, be inward-looking. And so what I'm hoping, the reason I mentioned that was I think I'm not pessimistic about only in the LSE can you get together 100 people to talk human rights, I and mean, it's not true. It's how you, how you label it. You know, dignity in a residential home is human rights. You know, a, a homeless person getting fed uh, soup outside uh, the town hall is a human right. And so I think it's how we, you know, what happened in Bristol in the care home, uh, we don't use the language human rights, but we sh maybe we should. Maybe dignity is another word for it. I mean, we need to think about how we, uh, I don't want to use the word branding, um, but you know, how we, how we brand uh, uh, words and stuff. Jill, um, is, is a really interesting question. What, what we did in, in the sort of last two years, in particular of, of uh, sort of 2008-9, uh, was looked at the issue of next generation uh, rights, third generation rights, uh, climate change, uh, economic rights being a good example. You, you mentioned social economic. There's a whole, there was a whole complicated discussion about whether these rights have been enforceable, um, which is interesting. It's an interesting discussion and one, one uh, we should look into. What I want to do is, is be, be sneaky and, and plug the Society of Labour Lawyers are having a fringe meeting on the Sunday before Labour Party conference and looking at this whole issue of third generation rights and social and economic rights. What I don't want to do is on the one hand say that it's important that we listen to people and go around the country and take on board people's concerns and then give you the answer uh, in June 2011, what I think in May 2015 should be in a manifesto. But I think it's an interesting area worthy of discussion and debate. What I'm going to do is be sneaky and say that um, I was a bit part of that process of looking at uh, additional rights for the last government. I was on the Labour government's Bill of Rights reference group, they called it, rather than the Commission. And because it led absolutely nowhere, uh, we even lost power, though... Francesca. <laughs> no, 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 it ran into the ground before that, that point. And, I mean, it wasn't totally surprising that it did. It isn't easy to introduce a Bill of Rights a, a, a less than 10 years after the first Bill of Rights was introduced, which is what um, that was at the time, it's really not easy to keep doing this when you're not in a constitutional moment, as it were, like at the end of a revolution or the you know, end of colonialism. And therefore, that is why I think we should be watching very carefully and with a, a sense of detachment and a lot of Orwell and Kafka in our head when something else is set up called a Bill of Rights Commission in the context of so much noises off about the fact that what we've got now, our current Bill of Rights, is apparently giving too many rights to too many people. I think that the obligation, personally, I don't know what you would think, Shadow Lord Chancellor, but the obligation of academics, of students, of an opposition party, is to be supportive to something called a Bill of Rights Commission, but approach it with the correct level of scepticism that warrants the kind of context in which it was introduced. I'm completely abusing my position as a chair, but I quite like your response to that comment. No, I think it's, I think it's very fair. And, and, you know, the, the problem is, if you look at, uh, just, uh, one tries to be fair with the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, but when you look at who they've appointed and the way they did this, I mean, it's not the way to go about building a consensus. Uh, and my point is, and I made this point, uh, hopefully not flippantly during my, um, my, my lecture, but you know, if you look at all the constitutional change that we did, uh, especially in term one, which is where the, most of the change took place, there was a huge amount of work took place in advance. Mm. And it was a huge amount of consensus building with other political parties, with, with civic society, uh, all, all, you know, and lots of work went on. And we tried to be as inclusive as possible up to and including losing 
the, 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 the Bill of Rights stuff you mentioned, my nervousness about the commission of uh, Bill of Rights is just, just a, it's just a political fight. We've seen them many times before, and that's why I can't get excited about it, except to warn you of the potential danger if uh, the sort of Kafkaesque forces that Francesca's talking about uh, succeed. And I should emphasise that my point was entirely non-party political. More hands. One there, just behind you there. I'm going to look at upstairs. Yes, don't worry. One there. I'll take two upstairs. One there, and then I one there. I hope they get easier, Francesco. <laughs> You're at the LSE. Hello, thank you. Um, Owen Bocott from The Guardian. Um, just to ask, do, do you think there should be a privacy bill, and do you think that would bridge um, or give guidance to the judges in their... Um, interpretation of the uh, Human Rights Act and the competing um, articles there. Thank you. They don't get easier, as you can see. Was it you? Yeah, was it you? No. Um, Michael Zander, I'm delighted that um, the Labour Party is now completely on board on the subject of the Human Rights Act. I was one of those who tried to persuade Labour politicians many years ago that a Bill of Rights would be a good idea, or incorporating the European Convention. And it's really gratifying to see uh, how far that's gone. Um, I think the, the idea of a, an additional Bill of Rights is probably a recipe for disaster, uh, in the sense that, uh, it, well, first of all, it's not going to happen. In, if one looks at the commission that the government set up, uh, one notices that there are four very strong proponents of the current set up and four probable strong opponents and in that situation I, I take it that this is a recipe for long grass just wondering whether the Labour Party is going to give evidence to that commission and if so what is it going to say about keep it as it is or change it Thank you. There was a lady just behind you, should we let her, before we go um, upstairs and that was by the way Michael Zander who's an emeritus professor here at the LSE um, hello, my name's Miranda Kazantzis and I work at Amnesty International. Um, can I do three things very quickly? One, just to say that it's very interesting that you talked about dignity because, in fact, Amnesty has a campaign on poverty and economic, social and cultural rights called the Dignity Campaign. Um, secondly, I was a, a bit concerned, and it's just a plea, really, when the Society of Labour Lawyers meets to talk about enforceability, could, could you bear in mind what you said about the Commission being made up of lawyers and in fact have and reflect upon non-lawyers experience of ESC rights um, in that process of discussion. It's not, it, it, it should be a wider discussion than that, um, particularly when we think about uh, how the general public think of issues that they might not label ESC rights but in fact see as essential components of a life with dignity. And thirdly, it really is a question to go back to the question of public information and to really talk about the role of the press and the importance of the press in the UK and what the Labour Party is thinking with respect to that. Because yes, you can work at the grassroots and in schools, but what is the approach to press? Thanks. Thank you. And up here. Uh, hello. Yes, my name is Mark McDonald. I'm a criminal defence barrister. Um, can I, I should also admit I'm also a member of the Labour Party and uh, uh, I was a young lawyer when the Human Rights Act was brought in. I've got to say it was one of the, um, from my point of view as a member of the Labour Party, I was very proud to be a part of the party. It's something that we don't really congratulate ourselves enough on is the fact that we achieved uh, the Human Rights Act. 
uh, as a Labour Party. Part of your talk, you mentioned um, that uh, you, you chose an example when the Home Secretary talks about um, the sex registration. She had to do this because of the Human Rights Act. She had to do something. Uh, and I think you also mentioned it in the context of voting as well. And you say, well, she also, well, she didn't. She had two options. And one of those options is that she could have ignored what was said by the courts. I, I, I may have misunderstood what you were saying, but are you advocating that politicians should ignore what is said by the courts when it's a breach of the Human Rights Act? Thank you. Um, my name is Ian Anderson, and I have a sort of optimistic question, but then I will And you're from, Ian, are you from anywhere that you can share with us? Well, I belong to the campaign to make war's history, but I'm not talking about war. Um, I just want to say that um, it's kind of picking your brain, really. Um, if the EU have signed up to the ECHR and the EU acquire further competences, then if uh, any uh, government of the UK decided to uh, repeal the Human Rights Act, and presumably by the EU acquiring further competences, um, the pervasive nature of the ECHR in domestic uh, legislation would, would continue, um, it would survive. Um, but I'm not sure, so I'm sort of I'm throwing that out for comments. And then the other question I have is, uh, I'd actually think the Human Rights Act, um, in one limited respect, it is actually potentially a charter for criminals, but not in the way that Cameron imagines, because it has very specific limitations in it, in terms of the length of time in which uh, a victim um, has in which to air a dispute. And it's much, much less than, say, a breach of contract. Breach of contract, a person would have about six years to, um, to air their dispute in, in a court. But a uh, human rights matter, including a very, very serious one like torture, perhaps a year from the time that it happened. But these matters can take years and years and years to uncover precisely what's been going on um, the government have been criticised, of course, by uh, Strasbourg. There are parliamentary uh, elements in Strasbourg that have said that the government have failed to disclose their use of directed energy weapons, for example. Let's not get too technical. No, no, I'll try, try not to be too technical. But and I want this to is um, one more question. And, and, very, and so, therefore, very briefly, it seems as though it is possible to impugn the Human Rights Act as being a criminal's charter in, the sense, in a very surprising way, which is to say that within any given society there can be criminals right at the very top, uh, you know, the very, very top echelons of society can be really criminally minded and um, uh, lest it be suggested it's impossible for, say, a Nazi to get involved in human rights. We have the example of that man who became the head of the United Nations and it subsequently transpired that he'd been in the SS. I think his name was Kurt Waldheim, is that correct? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. I so th thank you, I mean, yeah, I was just course, waffling, so really, but thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. I, I'm going to just, whoever I catch, who's ever I catch right now? One more, last one. Thank you very much. My one is pretty short, Conor Geerty, LSE. Uh, the current uh, Secretary of State for Justice, as far as I understand, is fairly supportive of the Human Rights Act, and uh, the uh, leader of the Labour Party has called for his resignation. 
Uh, if uh, the uh, Secretary of State for Justice were, for example, Michael Howard, would the Human Rights Act have a better or worse chance of having a fair trial? And if uh, Kenneth Locke were sacked by the Prime Minister, would the Labour Party regard that as a triumph and in the best interest of the country? Very exciting question to end up with. Right, you've got about six questions in about seven minutes. So, so Francesca says to me, look, Sadiq, come to the LSU and have a chat about human rights. It'd be a pleasant evening. Uh, can, can I, can I, Owen, um, a very sneaky question. Um, he's a journalist, you see. Look, the, I mean, you'll remember the debates took place on the, on, uh, during ni the passage of the Human Rights Act, where the Conservatives um, voted against second reading of the Human Rights Act, didn't vote against third reading. And one of the reasons they didn't vote against was because of Section 12 of the Human Rights Act. And what that did was that gave the balance to the press over privacy, expression over privacy. I'm paraphrasing for brevity. And um, that's worked reasonably well. Uh, I'm not in favour, I mean, and I think Article, uh, and that, that balance works quite well, Article 8 and Article 10. One of the issues is, I mean, we're not actually sure how big of this problem is of injunctions, super injunctions. It's just, it's very, very murky what the problem's like. And so one of the things I was pleased to read from the Master of the Rolls report is, is a request of the MOJ to look into the number of cases there are and how big a problem this is. Because if you look at Trafagora, the case there, you compare and contrast that with, uh, I assume it is Ryan Giggs. I mean, it must be. Uh, um, I'm on Twitter. So, so I know it's Ryan Giggs. Uh, uh, you know, as I said, there's public interest and there's things that are in interest of the public. And so I think sometimes you're looking for a solution to a problem that's not the problem that we think it is. And so that's why I welcome the Joint Committee. I think we need to look at some of these issues. Um, it's noteworthy the Lord Wakeham's letter to the, to the Telegraph about what the PCC should be doing. I don't, I don't agree with him. Uh, I mean, the PCC is not, you know, set itself in glory with the way it's done with phone hacking. Uh, but I'm not sure a privacy law bigger than uh, what's in the Human Rights Act is the answer. That's Lord Wakeham suggesting that the private sector media be taken out of the yeah, Human Rights what, Act altogether. What, what it's interesting. I remember when it was going through the Human Rights Bill, the army said they should be taken out altogether. It's amazing how everyone wants to be taken out when it applies to them. Yeah, what Wakeham says is rather than the courts looking at privacy, the PCC should. The PCC is made up of seven editors of newspapers uh, and I think ten other actually decent people. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, Michael Sander, can I just say this? This is my embarrassing uh, uh, Michael Sander. Uh, when when Mike, Michael wrote all those pace books, I used to read them avidly and stuff, and uh, all, the, all the stop and search stuff, so I'm a big fan of Michael Sander, so he's asked me a question. Um, uh, Michael, um, what's interesting about when the coalition government was first um, formed, so this is, this is May, late May 2010, Chris Hoon said, if a, a, the coalition government tries to repeal Human Rights Act, that's my red line, I walk away. And McNally said the same thing. So Human Rights Act's our red line. If the coalition government tries to repeal it, we walk away. McNally subsequently gave evidence uh, late 2010, early 2011, to a select committee. His lines were, if the coalition government tries to withdraw from the European Convention of Human Rights, that's my red line, I walk away. The reason I tell you this is because uh, I think there are, is some people inside the Tory party who would like a Bill of Rights, which is Human Rights Act, minus uh, uh, privacy. So basically, Human Rights Act minus Article 8, I suspect. Um, and so when you, when you say additional Bill of Rights, 
additional implies the saying additional to what we currently have. And so the, 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 the answer to your question in a convoluted way is I think nothing will happen before 2015 um, because you can't lose a referendum on AV and get rid of the Human Rights Act and still be leader of the Liberal Democrat Party. Um, but the reason why you're right to raise the issue of uh, Bill of Rights replacing the Human Rights Act is what would be in its place. And I think, uh, as Francesco and I have alluded to, we're in, we're in favour of a, a Human Rights Act plus additional Bill of Rights. What we'd not be in, fa not be in favour of is, you know, Bill of Rights minus and, and getting rid of privacy is the obvious thing that the, the, the Tory party may want to do. Um, Miranda asked uh, 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 three questions, uh, which is very sneaky and very, very good. One of the things you're absolutely right about, about being, I was simply being, being flippant about society of labour lawyers as one, one vehicle, so I can't fight, as one vehicle uh, for, for getting views across, but you're right, we can't be inward looking. Uh, one of the things we've got to do is get ideas from outside, outside, which is a party of outside academics and uh, NGOs as wonderful as you all are, but from real people and what sort of issues, what, what sort of issues and challenges there are. Let me give you an example on dignity, which is look at, uh, look at some of the care home uh, things taking place and, and there's examples of you know um, I saw a case today about uh, an autistic person and his his rights uh, from the human rights you, you're right to remind me about the importance of not just talking to lawyers and um, NGOs uh, as well um, Mark uh, I was even younger than you when the Human Rights Act was uh, was uh, enacted Mark now I wasn't suggesting um, that uh, you don't respect the rule of law. What I was saying that is that the Human Rights Act um, doesn't, doesn't mean that ju the judiciary trump parliament. One of the big beefs that the uh, MPs in the legislature had, uh, as well as the executive, in relation to European court jurisprudence, is they're not, they're not giving us a wide enough margin of appreciation. And so there's European judges uh, telling British parliament what our laws should be. And my point was, actually, uh, there is a compare and contrast with Human Rights Act, because this is British judges actually not being allowed to tell uh, Parliament what to do because of the way it had been drafted, thanks to the advice from people like Francesca, which is because we were, we were live to the fact we weren't entrenching a, a, a Bill of Rights. We, were, we respected parliamentary sovereignty. You'll be aware, I think there were 27 occasions when, um, joined 1997 and 2010, um, in, there are declarations of incompatibility, and each year the Joint Committee of Human Rights would do a report saying what the government had done as a result, and they said, you can do remedial action, you can you know, change the law uh, via other ways and stuff, you've got to do something. I'm not, I'm not, and that's why I made the point with, with the prisoner's law thing, even when it's the European Court, I say you've got to respect the rule of law. Uh, but if you disagree, the, the argument is you do the minimal possible. My criticism of Theresa May is she used, she, she conf conflated European Convention uh, implications with Supreme Court implications to give the impression to the British public, the man or woman who writes in the Daily Mail or reads the uh, uh, newspapers, that judges once again are telling uh, elected parliamentarians what to do. Uh, and it's a very, very important difference. Ian? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, uh, there's a great article today from, 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 uh, in The Guardian from Timothy Garton Ash about the implications of the Lisbon Treaty, and he raises some of the issues that you raised. Uh, I'm afraid I, 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 I can't. I, I'm not sure what's going to happen as a consequence of the Lisbon Treaty and its consequences. Um, Connor raised uh, the friendly question at the end. Look, can I, can I say this, Connor? You know, there are lots of people who are progressives and who think Ken Clark is the promised Messiah uh, for those of us who want a progressive justice secretary. He ain't, right? Because if he was, 
he would have accepted the 23%, 23% cut which uh, Osborne made to his budget without argument. So Clark is quoted as saying, look, I'm not an alpha male, I'm not going to argue about this 23% cut in my budget because that's politics. Now, if you accept a 23% cut in your budget, it means you can't do intensive community sentences like you want to do. You can't deal with people with drug problems in prison. You can't deal with issues around numeracy and literacy. You can't do all the things that progressives want those who are convicted of crimes to have done to them in prison. You can't, for example, properly invest in all the things we want them to invest in. If you're obsessed by making sure you meet Osborne's demands, it means you have an arbitrary figure of 3,500 less prison numbers, and then you retrofit your policies around that rather than a sensible discussion around justice. So I'm afraid I don't think he's the promised messiah. And because of his lack of understanding about rape, and you know, for those of us who, uh, you know, you look at the progress made whereby we've tried to explain to juries that actually just because somebody uh, happens to know somebody accused of rape, it doesn't minimize the impact on you or, or mean, for example, that it can't be rape. And for him not to understand that and to use the language he did and then take, you know, 36 hours, 36 hours to apologize, I think it was right to call for him to resign. Uh, Professor Gitt is very good at speaking for himself in my experience, but I think his point was maybe that uh, if the opposition party, the Labour opposition, is intent on retaining the Human Rights Act, have you thought through who might replace Ken Clark should you be successful in oh, well, that, 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 that's another point. Have I understood no. your question correctly? Can I have a second set of promised Messiah? I've asked Ken Clark on a number of occasions on the floor of the House, and Connor, I'm a big fan of yours as well. Not as big as Michael, but a big <laughs> fan of yours. I will, email you, I will email you tomorrow all the times I've asked him to confirm unequivocally he believes in the Human Rights Act and all the times he's equivocated. Right? Now, if he is the promised messiah, why isn't he saying, I believe in Human Rights Act, it should stay, and I'll fight tooth and nail? He's not. Well, on that note, I want to say that you've been an absolutely fantastic audience, brilliant set of questions. Thank you very much indeed. My thanks also to Bradley Barlow and Helen Wildbore for all the organisation that's gone into tonight. My thanks to the Law School for offering to host this and a special thanks to our guest, Sadiq Khan, for giving us a really fantastic evening and an absolutely fair trial for the Human Rights Act. <laughs>